and got far more deeply into um, transcendental meditation, which I think opened up a very deep part of my creativity. And um, at the same time, I was kind of aware with this one more towards the time when it was finished that there's still there's still a certain kind of there's a sadness that I'm processing. You know, it's a sadness from you know we all we've all been through difficult things in our lives and I'm immensely privileged in lots of ways, but you know, emotional pain um, that's been there since childhood has definitely feeds into this music. And because it's more of a direct record, I think to me, at least when I listen back, that that is kind of apparent. And I'm obsessed with this, like the crossover point between sadness and beauty. There's some point if you, if you, if you, I suppose pursue trying to make something or trying to express feelings of beauty far enough there's a point at which the sadness creeps into it and and the same if you extreme sadness sort of starts to veer into beauty after a while there's something fascinating about the, those two core kind of emotions and feelings Hello, everyone, and welcome to Field Tripping. Today, we are talking with John Hopkins, Grammy-nominated, world-renowned musician who, fittingly enough, just released his new album, Music for Psychedelic Therapy, on Friday, November 12th. Our conversation touches on the inspiration and creative process for the record, his own journey with psychedelic medicine, and more. Before we get started, here's your reminder to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. Towards the end of the episode, we'll dive into our how-to segment where listeners call in and ask a question for me to answer. If you have a question about mental health, psychedelics, or anything we've chatted about, drop us a note at fieldtripping at castmedia.com or leave a voice recording at speakpipe.com slash fieldtripping. And if you love the show, leave us your thoughts in a review on Apple Podcasts. It's much appreciated and helps us reach new people to help educate them on psychedelics. Just go to our show on the app, scroll down, and click five stars, then drop us a review where it says, write review. Now, let's hit up some news to trip over. Compass Pathways announced the results of their phase 2b trial with psilocybin. They explored three different doses of the drug for treatment-resistant depression, finding that a psychedelic dose of 25 milligram promotes rapid reductions in depressive symptoms. Not only were these positive effects observed only a single day after dosing, but they were sustained for three months in some of the patients. As expected, not everyone benefited from the drug and some serious adverse effects were observed, including suicidal behavior and intentional self-injury. This is the largest controlled psilocybin trial to date and marks a huge step forward in our understanding of psychedelic therapies. The city of Detroit, Michigan decriminalized psychedelic plants and fungi. This means that people can possess and use these psychedelics with less risk of prosecution, at least from local police departments. The drugs are still illegal at a federal level, meaning there's still a legal risk involved, but it reflects a growing shift in public sentiment in favor of psychedelics, particularly those that are naturally derived. More than 10 cities across the US have decriminalized this particular category of psychedelics. On to today's conversation. Today, I'm here with John Hopkins a highly celebrated electronic musician and producer who has championed both conscious and complex music as well as up-tempo dance records throughout his catalog. His works have been Grammy and Mercury Prize nominated. He has scored films, 
and his frequent collaborators include Ryan Eno, Imogene Heap, Coldplay, Purity Ring, East Forest, and so many more. John's musicianship is one of a kind, and every record he's released takes you on a remarkable voyage. His new album, Music for Psychedelic Therapies, is no exception. John, thank you for joining us today, and welcome to Field Tripping. Thanks very much. Yeah, great to be here. Good to meet you. Thank you. First off, John, thank you really so much uh, for joining us on the podcast. Your album drops on Friday, uh, which is tomorrow. You've been interviewed by the New York Times, The Independent, and other publications, orders of magnitude larger than us. And yet you're still here spending time with us on this small esoteric podcast. So thank you. Truly, it is a genuine honor to have you on today. Thank you. Oh, it's a pleasure. I like talking about esoteric things. (laughs) Excellent. So my first question is, how are you today? Yeah, I'm very well. Um, I'm excited about um, finally revealing this record to people tomorrow. Um, Last night we had a a kind of immersive playback in London. on like multi-channel i've done like a multi-channel mix of the album so it was really exciting to present that to people last night um and start to confront the reality that like suddenly everyone's going to be familiar with this thing that was really just for me for so long you know let's go through that transition so yeah it's it's an exciting week is there a a level of extra nervousness that comes with the release of this album given the vulnerability involved with it yeah, I've I've been thinking about this. I think um it's a far more personal thing, which in one way means I feel more vulnerable, and another way means if it's not received well, it's it it I feel like like being completely honest, being completely truthful in music, um is kind of a validation of whatever happens. It just means it might you know, if someone doesn't like it, it just means they probably wouldn't get on with me, which is fine. <laughs> you have to get on with everyone. <laughs> Uh, that's a fair point. I had this question here that I'll ask, uh, even though you know it may not be relevant given the first two questions. But if you had to pick a song from Music for Psychedelic Therapy to describe how you're doing today, which one would it be, and why? Well, um, I think it'd probably be Welcome because um, when we are about to welcome this stuff out into the wider consciousness, and uh, it, yeah, I mean that track was like does exactly what it says. You know, it's supposed to be a kind of gentle ushering in of the you know of the sensations that the album will hopefully produce and uh, that's i guess what i'm trying to do this week i had the chance to listen to an advance uh record or advance release of it late last night because uh, i'd been traveling for the last couple of days so i finally got a chance to sit down with it and i found uh the most haunting track for me at least on the album was sit around the fire and the moment that mm. uh powered through me was when against the backdrop of what I think was a C major chord, I sat there with like a little electronic keyboard trying to figure out what the notes you were playing were because it's, you know, typically the two two uh, piano chords going back and forth. Um, mm-hmm. And Ram Dass says, I want to know who I really am. Um, and yeah. I, yeah. my question for you is, how has making this album helped you find out who you really are? I suppose by working without any expectation or with any plan. I mean, with previous albums, I've um, maybe only subconsciously, but there's been a part of me that's been trying to make something that's going to, you know, hit hard or, you know, be be great for a dance floor or, you know, do well commercially, whatever. There's a part of your brain, whether you like it or not, that's thinking about those things. You know, and right. there is the reality of, reality of, of having to make a living from music and all these things. And whilst I've always 
like, you know, I've been proud of what I've released and I'm not denigrating previous releases, but this one, I just didn't think about any of that stuff, not even for a minute. And um, it was so liberating, not so much for the record label. <laughs> they've been very, they've been very supportive actually. But so I think by working in that way, um, I feel like I, to me, it feels like the record is like a quite a deep translation of who I am really. And, and maybe described or, you know, on a deeper level, like I'm not, music is there to, to, to communicate things that cannot be communicated with any other medium. So it's a, it's almost like a kind of love letter to, to, to everything really. Um, so maybe I found out that that's what I wanted to do. I imagine as you were writing it, there was, and certainly reading how you described, you know, your response to it and your reaction to having it played live, like you learned something about yourself on a, on a deeper level. Maybe that was in the caves of Ecuador, or maybe it was in the process of creating the music. Is is there anything that kind of stands out of, you know, around like, huh, I didn't really know that this is what motivates me or this is who I am or this is what mm. I'm passionate about. Uh, or this is what I've been holding on to for way too long. And and through the process of this album, m- maybe you've released it or maybe you've just been like, oh, I, I just became aware of that and, and that's good to know and now I can work with that. Well, I think it's um, it's just been like another step along the journey with, with each album revealing certain things. I think between this one and the last one and then even more the one before that, I went through a lot of life changes um, and got far more deeply into... Um, Transcendental meditation, which I think opened up a very deep part of my creativity. And um, at the same time, I was kind of aware with this one more towards the time when it was finished that there's still, there's still a certain kind of, there's a sadness that I'm processing. You know, it's a sadness from, you know, we all, we've all been through difficult things in our lives and I'm immensely privileged in lots of ways, but, you know, emotional pain, um, that's been there since childhood has definitely feeds into this music and because it's more of a direct record i think to me at least when i listen back that that is kind of apparent and i'm obsessed with this like the crossover point between sadness and beauty there's some point if you if you if you i suppose pursue trying to make something or trying to express feelings of beauty far enough there's a point at which the sadness creeps into it and and the same if you extreme sadness sort of starts to veer into beauty after a while there's something fascinating about the, those two core kind of emotions and feelings and um with this one they they collide i think and i think particularly through the writing of the tyos caves piece um that there's a there's a sadness about you know that one of the ideas of going there was to be inspired by the place in order to make this piece and to, you know, to uh, be there. I didn't do the field recordings, but I was standing next to the guy, Mendel Kalin, who was doing them. And, um, and I think what came across in that track was my sadness about the destruction of all these incredible environments. You know, one of the purposes behind that trip was to shine a light on a rare, um, pristine, perfect part of the world that hasn't been touched by mankind yet. And um, yeah, I discovered through this process that the, there's a heartache, a genuine sadness for what is lost as well as what can be saved. You know? One of the things you said just then that really struck me, and I agree with you um, talking about the crossover point between sadness and beauty. And it seems in 
think most conceptions of emotions, sadness and beauty um, tend to be at the opposite ends uh, of I think what would imagine uh, people think of like the emotional spectrum. Um, but I, I can totally resonate uh, with the idea that sadness and beauty can actually coexist and, and overlap quite significantly, that you can find beauty in sadness. And I think where that comes from is beauty being a kind of transformative energy. You know, when you experience true beauty, it, it fundamentally changes you. But I'm wondering if you can offer a little more color or insight about how you see sadness and, and beauty interacting or, or overlapping. Because uh, I think it's really important, uh, but it's, it's a hard thing to reconcile even in my mind. It's difficult because I think, you know, I'm not really... Um so much of a communicator in in words i can try but you know the music that i make is is there to do that i'm not trying to dodge the question i'm mm -hmm. just more thinking that you know to trying to translate that feeling there's a part of me that just intuitively does that into the music and i don't remain consciously aware of that process particularly right. i do know that it's been something that i've noticed is present in my psyche in the way i operate since i was since i was a teenager since i first experienced difficulties in life because i had a very idyllic childhood and then things went wrong a bit in my teenage years and um and i think going through that stuff at a, quite a formative you know a time when you're transforming a lot anyway it, it went in very deep and um so that stuff is just present in me and i i celebrate it really um and and think there's value in trying to translate it into music that's really cool i, I like how you said you you celebrate it um because it, it it's part of who you are and therefore it's part of what empowers um you know the music and and the beauty that that's contained in the music and it, you know your comment actually touched on um my next question which i was really proud of because i thought like no one's ever asked him this question but you've totally kind of laid into it because my question was, one of the things that struck me as I was listening to Sit Around the Fire was the elegant interplay between the music and Ram Dass's words. It gave me a newfound appreciation for just how textured and complex and beautiful and subtle and nuanced communication is. And as I let that in, it helped me understand just how deeply intertwined communi communication and connection are whether through words or energy or whether the communi communication carries information or emotion, communication is what I think breeds connection. You don't need to respond to this at all, but I would just want to share that with you, that it was actually a, a quite illuminating insight for me. And that just came from listening to uh, Sit Around the Fire and, and just realizing how much more powerful it was uh, with that interplay. Um, so it gave me a new newfound appreciation, certainly for, for lyric writing and uh, I think an awareness of how a lot of music, uh, the lyrics and the music don't nearly contain the power of what I heard in, in that song. Well, that's amazing. I mean, that's, uh, I, it's lovely that you put it that way and that you felt like that because that is, I, I had a very magical experience making that piece. Um, so I had the, um, like the talk that he gave firmly on my headphones and I was quite immersed in it and I had the fire sound and I had East Forest vocals in the background and um and I wasn't aware of what I was going to play on the piano but I always hit record and there was just this like 
I've just as I've got older, I've learned that my hands will just go where they need to go, and um, there was a point where he reached a natural pause, and then I was like, oh, "Okay, they're going here." And this this chord, which is it was actually C minor, oh, okay. but you were very close. <laughs> C minor with a, with a fourth and a seventh, and then going to A flat major, and then E flat major, and then back to A flat major, and the, and it was so simple. It's like there's only four chords, I think, in the whole track. But it was about it was about when to shift between them and letting an interplay exist, you know. And it was it felt like um, I was duetting with him, even though he was he, he's not alive anymore. And you're listening to a recording from before I was born, even. Yeah. So there was a sort of poetry in that. I thought like duetting across the different realms of reality and technology. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. Um, I, I like the thinking of it as a as a duet because you t- typically think of a duet as a you know, at least for me, um, not being a musician, as like two people singing together, two people playing guitar together, two people playing piano together. But I've never really thought of a duet between uh, you know vocal and and the music. That's always been lyric and music in mind. But um, but I think mm-hmm. that's like the perfect articulation of what I was trying to say is that there was a, a definitely. I don't know if duality is is related to the du- the word duet, but I think you know what I'm talking about. Um, Probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah. One other point on the duet thing, which is that the the same process happened on other tracks, but with start the starting points being um, the sounds, the field recording sounds, the sounds of nature. So right. whether it's the English woodland on this English woodland features heavily on about three of them, and then there's the Ecuadorian rainforest, obviously on on Tyos Cave section. And using those as starting points, like in the past when I've used field recordings, I've tended to layer them in at the end. Um, but with this one, I started with them and then responded to them. So there was duetting with nature as well. And um, yeah, that was a new experience. But I found that certain things just would call to me when you know playing an instrument with those sounds in my headphones. Very cool. Can you, I mean, you start to touch on a little bit with a reference to the the chords of the piano that you were playing, but can you break down that song for us a little bit more? Like I I wrote down, it's underpinned by the chanting that, I I called it chanting. I don't know exactly how you describe the the singing in the background. It starts around the two minute mark Mm. uh, or and then around the two minute mark when the piano kicks in uh, with the two or four alternating chords. And then there are a variety of very, you know, subtle elements. Certainly it starts with the, the sound of the fire, but can you share a little bit more about what's happening in the track and and you know i have to give full credit that i've recently discovered the podcast sound exploder um song, song exploder yeah have you heard it yeah i've done it actually oh, yeah have you? <laughs> i went on it uh, there's a track called luminous beings from um singularity i did the um song exploder i think 2018 okay and uh, it's an amazing it's an amazing thing i really like it and the the guy Rishikesh Hirway, he he does the interview and then cuts himself out. So it sounds like I'm just talking quite eloquently about my album, whereas I don't, I'm not really able to do that without <laughs> questions, or some would say even with them. But um, to answer your question, so this track was, I mean, compared to the rest of them, it's sonically very simple. It's it's if you were to do a song exposure on it, this would be the shortest one. Okay. And I felt like after the previous seven or eight tracks, I can't remember how many tracks are on the album now, all of them are quite, um, you know, there's a deep kind of immersive cosmic strangeness going on with a lot of them, quite a lot of, particularly towards the end, it, it takes off, you know, into somewhat of a different realm. And I wanted the last piece, Sit Around the Fire, to be like a, like a feel like a coming home, you know, like a grounding. So 
there was a conscious choice not to use any, well, only to have the lightest touches of electronic stuff. But mostly it's it's acoustic sound. So it's there's the fire, which has been processed, and I, I think I reversed the sound of the fire, so you hear the, the fire kind of crackling, but also reverse crackling, which I think was an interesting texture to base it on. And then East Forest vocals, and he, I did a lot of processing on what he'd sung. He had, um, he'd sent me a, a kind of a whole other composition actually, and just said you can just use what you like from this and discard the rest. And I, I picked the vocals out because they were really amazing sort of harmonies, um, and I processed them into this big um, impulse response reverb, which means uh, a reverb that is based around a, a real physical space. Um, and there's a program that has loads of these in them so you can literally essentially sing into the natural reverb of like the king's chamber in the pyramid in giza or you know like a mausoleum in india or a mosque so cool. or, you know it's it's incredible yeah and i use these things all the time and um but very heavily like you know to to really put put things really far away so east forest voice is like miles away and really ethereal and um under that is um Sometimes, um, if I'm in the countryside, I'll just record out the window when there's nothing to record. You know, sometimes you think it, because there's never silence. There's always something. And it's actually often just the sound of, I don't know, the, the sound of, like, there's, a, there's certain sounds you hear at night that you don't register, but whether it's just very faint wind in trees or something. So I, I, I often have like a library of that kind of, they're almost like silences. There's almost nothing there, but I've noticed that if you layer those into pieces of music, it gives you a kind of spatial setting for it almost. Um, and also an energetic setting. So, you know, the kind of, the album ends for me almost like as the sun is coming up, you know, it's sort of the end of the night. Um, so that, those elements are there. And then, um, the piano, um, just two microphones hanging right in, like deep down into the actual instrument, which gives a certain weight, I think, to the sound. And then it was quite, it was interesting mixing Ram Dass's voice because it was on a, you know, presumably recorded on tape in the 70s and right. quite a lot of noise. East Forest managed to clean up a lot of the noise and um, we did it, some editing on it together. And then I just wanted to make sure it sat really softly and it really sounded like him because you know sometimes with an older slightly low tech recording the speed might be slightly off making him sound a bit high pitched or too fast or whatever so i kind of spent some time on that it's really it's all about him it's all about his what he's saying and everything i've just, just described is in service of that talk really yeah and then there's a couple of other elements which i would which are more abstract um, that you're talking about the sort of subtle electronic like they're more like natural sounds that I processed and tried to just to give a little um a little kind of unearthliness to it. And there is one one last cool thing, which is that when he says um we know we're of the spirit, I took the S separately and made the S reverberate. So he kind of go like and you can if you can <laughs> you can hear it on headphones like the S kind of rises up. And I love the idea that that one that one syllable, that one sibilance that this man uttered all those years ago becomes a sound that then wraps around you and, and disappears. Oh, that's so cool. I'm going to have to listen to it with the headphones much better than my AirPods at 11 p.m. and, and really lean into it. I, I yeah. didn't quite catch that, but I appreciated your comment about silence. Um, I was in 
uh, Las Vegas for a conference last week and I escaped out into the desert and went on a hike and, and at various points I stopped and I listened and I've never heard silence of that nature. It was in the middle of the day when the sun was mm. shining uh, and I, I, you know, it was mm. so silent to the point where when an airplane flew overhead, it was uh, almost offensive in, in terms of how it cut into the beauty of the silence. And it was yeah. also remarkable how long you could hear the airplane for, you know, sometimes you hear a plane overhead and it's like, whoosh, and like, you don't think about it anymore. But in the middle of the Nevada desert, this may have been Arizona, actually, the sound trailed for about 10 minutes and mm. it was still uh, inter interfering with the, the serenity and the silence that was there. Um, but uh, I think it was very cool that you sit there and record just silent, what would appear to be silence and, and then find the subtleties and in, in, in that. You must have a pretty big library of collections uh, or a collection of different soundscapes. How do you keep keep track and be like, oh, you know what? I need the silence from three weeks ago on Monday. Like, how, yeah. how do you track that? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting. There's kind of, They're mostly attached to different projects. So sometimes they'll be like, um, yeah, I have like a big archive of drives here and they've all got things on them. So I, I'm a big believer in things landing where they're supposed to land and, um, and embracing the synchronicities that happen. Um, so very often I'll grab something without knowing how it's going to sound from the library, which might not necessarily be particularly clearly named and just drop it and almost always it works first time works straight away um i don't know why but um that happened a lot with this record cool there's a track called love flows over us in prismatic waves which is the fifth track on the record and um it starts with this kind of it's actually a piano but it's been processed beyond the point of recognition into something more more drone-like and um I, i remember when i was making that I'd made that drone melody and I had a glass next to me, a glass of beer. It happened to be, I only have water today, but I flicked it like that. And it just happened to be on the exact note oh, cool. that, um, that the chord needed. And so you can hear that in the track quite clearly. It sounds like a little bell, but it's actually like a very precise amount of a particular kind of beer <laughs> that led to that note coming out at that exact second. And had it not, had it been out of tune and I'd flicked it, I might not have had the idea to put it in. So, I like to be open to all these things. If they want to get in there, they will generally. Have you ever tried to create, recreate that note or did you just take that moment to appreciate it and, and not, not seek to recreate the grandeur? I, well, I just got the mic and stuck it on the thing and I like doing that to it. And um, it's actually a really nice um, sound that I feel like I could do more with, you know, the great thing about the, 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 stage that music software is at now is that you can kind of create an instrument out of anything so you could map that across the keyboard and have um have this really interesting texture going on so yeah i mean sometimes i will do that i'll go back to these moments yeah cool do you have a particular approach uh, when it comes to writing you know for for instance uh my favorite author tom robbins you know he had a process mm. where every ah. day he would sit down at the keyboard uh, at the typewriter at I think he started at 10 a.m. and it was every single day. And then he had a process that he'd follow every day. And that was his creative process. Mm. And clearly it worked very well for him, um, at least in my humble opinion. Um, wondering if you have a particular process that you follow or do you just let inspiration guide you? So before I answer that, I have to tell you that yeah, Tom Robbins is one of my favorite authors as well. Amazing. I, think that I would say Jitterbug Perfume is maybe my favorite book. <laughs> just that absolutely absolutely love every page of that book it's unbelievable a hundred percent 
yeah, just I love the way he just uses mythology to tell the story of everything um, in, integrated with the modern time. And he's even got a Timothy Leary character in there as well. It's, yeah. really, it's incredible. It's really incredible. But yeah, so my process is is not like that at all. I, I kind of sometimes feel like I could make more effort with routine, but um, I'm also, I'm very much about synchronicity and about what the energy is of the particular day I'm in. And, um, you know, I, I'm not a very good sleeper, so a lot depends on how my sleep is. And if, if you know, I, I've, I've taken to kind of sleeping in longer in the morning and I'm now feeling more, I very much linked sleep to levels of inspiration. And sometimes not enough will create a different kind of inspiration. Sometimes it will create the inability to do any work. Um, so I'm quite, I try and be gentle on myself with it. I mean, when I was writing this album, um, I was pursuing it like almost in a trance flow state for like many months. And I wasn't really thinking that much about anything else. Um, so I would turn up at the studio at maybe two, 3 PM and do keep working until it's like probably eight or nine. Um, and then, but these days when I'm kind of, yeah, I, I can I think my brain likes um, irregularity in work, and it likes to be inspired. This um, studio where I am now is attached to my house, so I can kind of, I've kind of integrated it more into my day, so I can kind of go in and out of here and do bits and pieces here and there. So yeah, it's kind of, um, kind of the opposite, I think, of of Tom Robbins in that case. Much of this album was, uh, I guess, recorded and or inspired, uh, probably in the in the deepest depths of the COVID nineteen pandemic. And one question that I've posed to many uh, people who've been on the podcast is, um, you know, uh, people had a lot of different experiences during the pandemic. Um, but one of the ways that I've liked to consider it is that it was a great pause. It was a great pause that gave. Uh, everybody some time for reflection and, you know, like it or not, brought a lot of uh, the, the things we deal with in our lives emotionally to the surface. Um, and I'm wondering to what extent did the fact of the pandemic uh, inspire the writing? Uh, and beyond uh, that, how has the pandemic, you know, influenced or affected you personally? Uh, and, and what have you taken through the experience of you know, something that hasn't been experienced in a good couple of generations. To skip back to the 2018, when I went to Ecuador originally, that which was the starting point for the album, I didn't then actually have time to start working on that piece. And, um, you know, things percolate on the subconscious level for me, um, I'm sure for everyone. Um, and so I, I don't like to rush to start things. I do believe that when the right time to start something um suggest itself that is it and you, you can't force that or rush that it just so happened that um i didn't have any time at all to even think about that track until the pandemic and then um i had the field recordings and i one day i just it was june of last year i just woke up i was like i want to make some music and i want it to be this ecuador piece so and then of course there were no interruptions um and that is very unusual for me i've been i've got quite a varied life i do a lot of live shows and i do occasionally work on films or tv things or whatever it is um and um none of that stuff was happening so i think it allowed me to go deeper you know uh, in a sense that the record i think was always going to exist um i would have been i would have made it regardless but it would have been split up into way more chunks you know way more different bursts of work rather than one burst and i think for me the reason the whole thing sounds like one 
cohesive organism almost just because of the yeah like you said everything was paused and um there was this there was this opportunity to focus i think we all did this well certainly everyone i know here that i talk to we put extra pressure on ourselves at the beginning to suddenly be creative like, oh, we call this time this is a gift let's let's i'm gonna write my first novel or whatever <laughs> actually i you know I, I went into that as well and i took on a couple of remix projects that i wouldn't normally have done and I was just like, why am I just continuing? This is an opportunity to stop and do something different. Um, so, I, yeah, before I started uh, the Ecuador piece, I took a good few months just to sit, really. And, um, you know, I remember it was a particularly beautiful spring here. It was really hot and everything was blooming. And it was, people were, I think, confronted by, or perhaps aware for the first time of just the, the magic of nature through being just not really able to go anywhere you like people who have i don't really have much of an outdoor space here but just the tiniest thing like your house plants or i got a little area on my roof where things grow and just observing the way things bloom um there's lots of people talked about that who i'd never heard talking about that before so and you know you're allowed to go out to exercise so i was going on these runs um and just seeing things almost like in a different way and life moving at a different pace and a bit slower and um and yet at the same time, it was kind of counteracted by a, an underlying sense of fear because we didn't know at that point, you know, the nature of it. And um, there was obviously it's still, it's still a still a, still a present thing. Um, it also allowed me the opportunity to be more deeply involved in my re- relationship that I was in at the time. And um, right. something about the touring musician's life is that sort of thing can be really difficult, you know, if you're going away a lot and focus is taken um so a lot of things changed very quickly i went from this sort of itinerant traveling musician life to um quite domestic and quite kind of enjoying pottering at home and uh doing more normal stuff i guess yeah do you find that uh you you've craved the the puttering at home um you know and, and appreciate that lifestyle a little bit more are you keen to get back into uh, into the road and and resume the lifestyle that you had before how was how is it going to be different yeah it's interesting so i've already done a few shows and i did a small tour um in the usa in uh, september um which was supposed to happen the year before and it was it was alarming in many ways doing it suddenly there were like 15,000 people in front of me and i've done anything like that for about a year and a half and it was daylight and it was just something i also don't often perform in and everything about it just felt yeah alarming is the only word i can think of really it was like this is so extreme how did i ever get used to this and at first it was not um it took me a while to to settle down into it um i've had a, a sort of had a handful of shows since then back in the uk as well um and, but what I've started doing is just carving out one or two days a week where I do, where it's just a kind of self care day and everything is, all the technology is off. Right. And I do more exercise and long, much longer meditation. I might fast until dinner, you know, that sort of thing. Um, just to try and get a reset point every week because, um, that was something I wasn't really particularly good at before. So, and then also even earmarking maybe five days every couple of months where I just, disengage from everything um that's work related or tech related in particular try and have no screens and no and i feel like 
Yeah, I am enjoying being at home. I'm not like them. I'm in a strange combination of introvert and extrovert. I mean, maybe everyone is to a degree. I have wildly extrovert moments, but ultimately, I do feel like the pandemic has made me more more content to not see people, more content to just be at home or or just hang out with my you know closest friends or whatever. And I've definitely noticed this in other people. They, there seems to be a kind of almost increased awkwardness in socializing. Maybe we'll, I feel like we'll all get back to how we were. You know, certainly not even knowing if they're going to want a handshake or a fist bump or a bow or a hug. Or <laughs> it's all like we, it feels like we're all being um, slightly regressed to teenage years, to <laughs> that sort of thing. Like your awkward grade eight dances where you're standing really far. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, swinging back and forth. Yeah, one of the things I found personally is that you know, uh, people kind of went in two ways. People either learn to find appreciation in, in the simple you know, and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and going deep with what, with what is available where, um, people lost their minds and hated being cramped and, and stuck and not being, you know, able to do what they wanted to. Um, you know, I found, uh, I found the same, which is, I, I'm like you, I'm a, I'm a, I'm very much an introvert. You know, you see me on stage or speaking, I, I come across as extroverted and like well-spoken or even outspoken. Um, but inherently I'm, I'm an introvert. And so, um, it's, it's really, you know, and, and my wife is the same way actually. And I think we've both kind of leaned into it. And so finding a, a new balance, um, and, and appreciation for the things that we have, as opposed to a want for the things that we don't is, is one of the things that I've, I've really taken away from the last year and a half or so. No, I can, I can fully relate to that. Um, I think so much, I remember like here people were describing it as a, as a, as almost like an equalizer but i didn't agree with that because it's your experience of it so much depended on your situation when it started like if you have if you're lucky like i'm privileged to have this space here and um you know i live on my own and i just imagining like living in a small place with a whole family and not being able to go out i feel like this you know vastly different it's a very simple example but Mm -hmm. you know this was not, people were not having equal experiences at all. We all had a something changed, but if you were fortunate at the beginning, then you tended to be more fortunate throughout. So um, I felt like grateful to be able to just continue working and just to be able to write this album, but also aware that um, I was immensely lucky to be able to do so, really. You've, um, at least according to the New York Times album or New York Times article I read uh, yesterday, you've never played the album live and don't know if you will. Um, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, for a start, it's, it doesn't suggest itself as a live performance. I mean, when I listened to it um, last night at this uh, immersive playback thing, which is far more what I think it suits, I just, you know, I hear these sounds that go on for, many minutes and evolve very slowly and i just don't know what in what way you would i think certainly now when people are only just gonna we're just about to hear it for the first time the idea of tearing it apart and rebuilding it in front of people seems entirely unnecessary you know i, I feel like it what well, my ideal um way for this to go would be for people to 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 get to listen to it and familiarize themselves with with the landscape of it because it is like a place it is like a landscape for me like an energetic landscape that you move through gradually um and then maybe later on something will suggest itself to me but i i'm I'm much more interested in the idea of having maybe a structure a festival where people could go in and lie down um 
And there'd be like a Dolby Atmos system in there. So you've got like 30 speakers with all the different sounds coming in the different ways we've mixed for that. And, um, more of an, more of an experience that you go to rather than something that you watch. Cause there also wouldn't be much to look at if I was performing because right. the pace of it, you know. So, um, that's kind of where I am with that. But I, I would never say never to something like that. It just would need to be the right, um, the right ideas would need to appear, I think. Is there an aspect of vulnerability, like uh, the vulnerability and, and honesty that you put into the album that may cause hesitation around performing it? Or is it more about the sort of mechanical performance aspects of it? Yeah, I think it's more about the style of the music just not lending itself and the the, the nature of the sounds. Um, I mean, you could kind of do, you could maybe try and work out an orchestral scoring of some of it. Like you could get at the end of the Ecuador pieces, all strings and that could be played by an orchestra but then the other sounds are not recreatable apart from by playing them back and it just keeps leading me back to the same point which is how would it be different and why why would it need to be different and then um i think that i already i mean the shows i'm doing i haven't managed to bring this to america yet or north america at all but um the shows i've been doing with um grand piano and a band over here in concert halls have involved walking on stage without any idea at all about what I'm going to play at the beginning and just improvising and very quietly as well. And that's, I first did that in Sydney Opera House at the start of last year as a real, like, let's just see what this feels like, you know, (laughs) it's an amazing place to do that. Um, But I've been improvising since I learned the piano and that was my first love with, with playing the piano really. So I think I get enough of that vulnerability through just walking on and like seeing what comes and inevitably um what comes out has a pretty fragile intimate sound to it because that just seems to be you know what um what i'm wired for <laughs> keith jarrett and the uh, the corn concert oh, yeah. um you know i recently discovered that i guess it's not that recent anymore it's a couple of years ago now but uh, i was I've always been a person who aspired to be a musician, but uh, I was born with a distinct lack of pitch uh, or rhythm. Um, so I was never destined right. to be a musician. Um, but uh, yeah, listening yeah. to the Cone concerts uh, by Keith Jarrett and and how, you know, it was improvised and, and the crazy story about how there's, you know, the, the piano was out of tune. It, it just, I have, it, it's a long way of saying I have an incredible amount of respect for people who can improvise musically. I have an incredible amount of respect for people who can play music properly, unlike me, but uh, the the skill of improvisation <laughs> is so far outside of my realm of comprehension or understanding that I have mm-hmm. a, a lot of appreciation for people who do that. So hopefully I'll be able to uh, to catch you one day doing so. Yeah. Well, I mean, I cut, but you know, I couldn't stand on stage and do a talk like you do. So it's, it's very much, um, you know, we're, we're doing what we're supposed to be doing and it's, it's important to recognize what you can and can't do. And that, you know, many things, um, most things I can't do, but I can do <laughs> improvisation and it gives me, um, a great kind of freedom. Um, and I was talking with my friends who is in the band with me at the moment, um, as we both come from a classical background, just about how much more nerve wracking it was to perform pre-written classical music that you know, there is a perfect way of doing it that pre-exists. Right. Um, and it was set in stone like 200 years ago or whatever. Um, whereas with this, you know, we, we've been playing together, um, for nearly 30 years, um, since we were at school together. Um, and 
we just uh, we just feel so comfortable playing in front of hundreds of people without having a clue where we're going with it and that i would have thought you might imagine it might be the other way around but there's just something freeing about it i think no i, I can totally see that it, it resonates with me on actually a deeper level so uh, uh a friend of mine um just launched an app called Othership, um, which is a, a breathwork app, but he also ho- hosts um, experiences uh, that are a combination of, of sound experiences, both recorded music, but they also have live instruments, uh, which are also, uh, I guess, facilitated through um, various psychedelics uh, as well. And it becomes mm-hmm. this incredibly immersive experience and powerfully moving experience. Um I should, I should connect you guys because I think, you know, when you talk about having people go and lie down when they listen to this album and, and immerse such sound experience, I think there's some probably pretty amazing ways that that could be enhanced um, through different techniques. Uh, sure. And I think it'd be really cool mm-hmm. to experience it that, that way. Uh, on that note, actually, I mean, the album is called Music for Psychedelic Therapy. Was it your intent for it to be used in conjunction with psychedelic therapy? You know, as, um, you know, East Forest, who's been on the podcast, um, talked about, you know, he wrote in with the idea of having ketamine-assisted therapy in mind. And obviously music for mushrooms speaks to itself as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, But was that in your mind or was it kind of the output being like, this is perfectly suited for for psychedelic therapy? No, the title, um, I mean, I think I've been making music for people to have altered consciousness experiences too for a long time since you know teenage experiences of my own experimenting with cannabis and music in conjunction sowed that seed a very long time ago you know things to enhance your inward journey um and turn music into place that's how it always feels um so i feel like i'm always doing that and then i'd um but between the previous album and this one i'd met um, a lot of the therapists and scientists who are working on the psilocybin for depression trials that we've had over here at Imperial College and just talking and become becoming interested in the subject and um and the methods they use and it's just you know listening to podcasts on the subject as well so I think my subconscious was intrigued by this and um the title itself came to me after a ketamine experience and I okay. I had a very deep listen to some music that I loved. I don't think it was after listening to early versions of the album. The album wasn't ready enough then to be tested in that way, but um, it was probably halfway through. And it was as if that name just got beamed into me. And it, I, I was sort of hesitant in a way. Like, I felt like I had no choice about it. Like that had to be the name, but I don't regret it. But it very much, it sounds quite prescriptive, but really it's partly... I think they're beautiful words and it's kind of an homage to Brian Eno music for airports. You know, that's not only supposed to be listened to in airports. Right. Um, this music is, this music is also just an album that, uh, um, that I personally find can be quite, um, powerful in conjunction with these things. And, you know, the influences I have, um, are coming from that world. So it was written, I think there's a part of me that knew it was writing for that purpose always, but yeah. And, and have you listened to it while having a psychedelic experience? Yes. Um, well, I, I have several times um, and different stages of its completion as well. I thought it was really important to um, to make sure that it works in that space and that it's, you know, to, to really to take care with it. Um, I like the idea of taking care of the listener, um, you know, really paying attention to what, feels like the right thing you know 
to to happen in the music um for someone in a vulnerable state or for someone that's looking for you know there, there's um my friend Mendel Kalen, who is founder of Wave Paths, who you may have encountered, um, he always says that music is the strongest therapist, music itself. And, you know, his app, Wave Paths, has got absolutely stunning music. And I actually um, sound like I'm playing my own trumpet. I did <laughs> contribute some of the music to that app. I'm not discovering, you know, anyway, so it's this AI controlled thing where the music just can be controlled. Uh, the the mood of the music and the depth and the intensity can be controlled by the therapist via this interface. And um, you know, that on its own, I've listened to that for, for a couple of hours and I feel like I've had a therapy session. So I think, you know, it's um, it's inherent in certain forms of music, I think, anyway, that it, to be therapeutic. Is there any particular psychedelic in mind? Uh, you know, uh, like I said, East Forest wrote in for ketamine-assisted therapy and, and music mm-hmm. for mushrooms for you know, psilocybin, uh, was there anyone in particular in mind or is it just, uh, just broadly a psychedelic experience? For me, it was ketamine because it's the, that, that's the, the experience that I'm currently resonating with most. I've had quite a lot of DMT experiences in my life, which I feel have possibly come to an end now. And I feel like I was doing them on one level in order to gather information in order to make this record. So for me, it feels like it's a translation of that kind of experience um specifically dmt not not ayahuasca which i haven't done um but then the current i mean i I felt i don't know maybe other people can relate to this but during the pandemic i found i did not want to have any of the plant-based psychedelics Mm -hmm. i just found like mushrooms tend to leave me they, they give me this great kind of optimism and um, guidance for the first half but towards the end of the trip i'd find myself getting a little over analytical my mind just really maybe it's like my mind kind of kicking in as a sort of revenge <laughs> having been uh, bypassed for a bit i don't know what it is it's something i need to work through but i didn't feel like working through that in the last period of time so i found ketamine to be a you know once a month maybe for the end of the last few months of the writing of the album just testing um with quite a therapeutic level dose um i would find that i would have almost like safe revisits of some of the DMT moments I've had, um, but also found that there was a great release, you know, through through this, through these early versions of this music, which was encouraging, you know, to getting it finished. I was reading that you were bullied as a kid, um, and that's actually uh, an experience. You and I share some synchronicities. We were both born in 1979. We both have a fondness for Jitterbug Perfume and Tom Robbins, and we both were bullied as a kid. Um, <laughs> how do you think that experience has influenced your music, and has the helping, uh, has the making of this album helped to heal that experience? You know, you touched on the sadness uh, earlier in the conversation, mm-hmm. which, if your experience is anything like me, you know, a lot of the the sensitive points uh, for me, you know, probably probably arised out of being bullied as a kid. Um, so just just wondering if if some of this process has been addressing that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it was quite, um, I think the bullying itself was not anything out of the ordinary. It was quite a common thing. Lots of other kids at my school went through it, but my nature was not really able to cope with it. So I became very reclusive and um, what that led to was the discovery of these internal worlds and disappearing into music and cannabis and things like that. Um, not necessarily in a healthy way, more of an escapist way, but the 
the the sort of knock on effects of that time and that reclusivity meant that I was quite behind socially. And as I became like in my early twenties and had written an album and uh, just started very much focusing on music, I my romantic life had kind of would, had stopped at the point at which the bullying started because just the opportunity to meet girls had disappeared. So I think I just ended up quite kind of immature in that way for quite a long time. Right. And that just led to some loneliness, I guess. Um, so yeah, it's something that kind of echoed on for a bit. Like now it's, it feels like it's processed really well. I'm even being kind of friends with the people who are involved. But, you know, I'm 42 now, so <laughs> you would expect it. You know, it's time to it's time to move on. But at the same time, there is still living inside of me that kind of lonely teen. Mm-hmm. You have the same in you. And um, you know, through a hypnosis session I once had, I was able to kind of go back and reassure that that teen. But he's he's still still in there somewhere, and um, no doubt playing that piano <laughs> quietly it, it's funny so the the sound bath um experience i was mentioning before uh, that i just had um ketamine was also offered during it and and during that experience uh, i went back and, and there's like an image of me i have of myself when i was probably 11 years old or so um fishing mm. and just looking back at that that child and and you know giving him you know, a lot of love that I don't think he experienced or mm. wasn't able to receive at that time. And it was a, it was a yeah. really magical experience. Um, so, yeah, that's amazing. What's the one song you can't get enough of right now? For me, it's uh, I Don't Live Here Anymore by The War on Drugs, but wondering what it is for you. Oh, wow. I need to listen to that. I had such a profound experience with a War on Drugs song called... Um, thinking of a place you know that one i don't know that one but i will definitely check it out yeah you must it's from the previous album it's like 12 minutes and it's just it's my favorite thing they ever did um i really there's a i really love this artist called mary latimore who um plays the harp and records and manipulates the harp in in a beautiful way and um and unfortunately, I can't remember. I'm really bad at remembering track titles, but um, she released a new EP reasonably recently, so you can check that out. Um, really, absolutely stunning stuff. It has a kind of inbuilt wistfulness and a nostalgia, but also a strength. And um, yeah, I, I do listen to that a lot. And the last question I have for you, um, because ultimately this is still a podcast that centers around psychedelics. Um, if not your own music, uh, what other albums or artists might you recommend <laughs> to support a psychedelic experience, excluding, of course, uh, our mutual friend East Forest, because that's a given. But uh, I'm wondering if any of yeah. the other ones might be up there for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have these playlists that I've um, worked on for my own experiences over the years, and I really like a variety of things. Um, I really like, there's a an artist called Matthias, who is from Rotterdam in the Netherlands, um, M-A-T-T-H-E-I-S, and he makes this extremely, I haven't, I don't know the guy, but I, I'm a fan and um, hope, hope to be working with him. He makes extremely, sounds highly spiritual um, in its nature to me, but it's made electronically with modular synthesis. Um, and then there's an artist called Elv, which is spelled E-L-V-E, a mysterious <clears throat> guy who lives lives in uh, Cornwall in the West Country here. Um and he made an album called Emerald, which I would say is the single biggest influence on this album and on my current direction. It's it's 
an extraordinary translation of um of the natural world into electronic music i mean it, honestly there's nothing really like it and i'm on a mission to get more people to listen to it so i'm always talking about it excellent well we'll uh we'll, we'll share that um with uh, with our listeners and, and make sure we link to uh, all of those artists and uh one one final question before we wind up uh what's next for you um obviously supporting this album but uh do you have anything in mind for what your next great adventure is going to be whether musically or personally um i'm i'm really someone who doesn't um think ahead that much i think i've got ideas um for like maybe a djable versions of some of the tracks on this record so that i can incorporate them in some of the upcoming more you know more dance orientated shows i've got um i have a show at the royal albert hall in london which is um you know an incredible incredible venue so that's that was supposed to happen in march of last year but that's coming up in about 10 days oh cool um so that's a big deal so yeah i'm kind of preparing for that and then as, as looking looking to next year there's some collaborations on the cards with some people i really like um there'll be um some follow-up releases to this record i'm sure um different versions of things and um i sometimes toy with the idea of going back into film scoring but i just i don't know i feel like i feel just very much a, a very strong sense of purpose in making this kind of stuff so I, you know maybe a volume two of this will happen at some point as well so one of the things I'm working on on the side is actually a documentary called Ordinary Trip, um, which is about trying to help normalize the conversation that psychedelic assisted therapies can be very much meaningful and impactful for um, ordinary people. You know, you don't have to be a military veteran who has experienced the worst traumas that many people could imagine, and you don't have to be a, a Lamar Odom, uh, you know, who is so far... Um, you know, I think emotionally uh, just destroyed from his experiences that he effectively killed himself uh, and has been to some degree brought back to life by this. But these things can be things that can enhance everybody's life uh, in, in small and incremental mm -hmm. and really meaningful ways. So if you're ever inclined to score another uh, record, I would be certainly happy to talk to you about that. But uh, you don't have to respond to that here because I put you on the spot. So <laughs> it sounds very interesting. Yeah, I'd love to see it for sure. And with that, I am going to say uh, I wish you the very best uh, for the launch of music uh, for psychedelic therapy. It's a, an amazing, an amazing experience. And I certainly encourage everybody listening uh, right now to, to check it out as soon as it becomes available because it is, it is quite powerful. Uh, and I want to thank you again very much for, for joining us. It, it really is an honor uh, that you chose to spend some time with us today. So thank you. And um, best of luck for tomorrow and and hopefully it's extremely well received thank you so much and you know thanks for the wonderful questions so uh, it's good to meet you hope to meet you in real life sometime i'm sure we will uh, i look forward to that since i've embarked on my own healing journey with psychedelics one of the key themes that has come up for me is about finding my voice again although to the outside world and as I said to John today, I may seem well-spoken or even outspoken. When it comes to those closest to me, I've lived most of my life afraid of holding boundaries or speaking out. And so my path to healing has been to find that voice again. And in listening to music for psychedelic therapy, I can't help but get the feeling that this album was John finding his voice again. It is a far cry from his previous albums. Instead of dropping bangers, as he's called them, this album is quiet, vulnerable, and sensitive. 
And my guess is that the real Johns Hopkins is just that, quiet, vulnerable, and sensitive, but who has for most of his life, much like me, adopted a persona and an artistic style that would tell you otherwise. But he's now finding his true self, and that's a wonderful thing. For as it's been said by Tom Robbins, our shared favorite author, all a person can do in this life is gather about him his integrity, his imagination, and his individuality, and with these ever with him, out front and in sharp focus, leap into the dance of experience. And with music for psychedelic therapy, it sure seems that John is doing just that. Hey, Ronan. Big fan of your podcast. Quick question for you. How do you think we can break the stigma of psychedelics? What is it going to take for society to really accept the healing potential of these amazing medicines? Thank you for the question. I'm a big believer that stigma cannot stand up to scrutiny in the face of data. And so what it is going to take to overcome the legacy stigma associated with psychedelics right now is really just to continue to fund research, continue to get conversations going, and then basically get out of the way. Right now, the evidence and support of access to psychedelic therapies is overwhelming. The safety profile of most classic psychedelics is extremely well-established. The therapeutic potential of many classic psychedelics as well as new psychedelics is being more and more established every day. The number of people coming out of the psychedelic closet talking about just how impactful psychedelic experiences has been to their growth and their evolution and their healing is increasing every single day. So all we have to do is continue to move this forward. Just keep working at it. Keep having these conversations. Keep raising awareness. And I think things will happen. It's bound to happen because one of the most beautiful things about psychedelics is not only the healing potential of them, but those who have experiences with them often report that they are amongst the most meaningful experiences of their lives. And with that kind of passion and with that kind of evidence, with that kind of data, it seems that overcoming the stigma of psychedelics is an inevitability as long as we keep the course. Thank you for listening to Field Tripping, a podcast that's dedicated to exploring psychedelic experiences and their ability to affect our lives. I'm your host, Ronan Levy. Until next time, stay curious, breathe properly, and remember, every day is a field trip if you let it be one. Field Tripping is created by Ronan Levy. Our producers are Conrad Page and Harley Roman, and associate producers are Sharon Bella, Alex Sherman, Macy Baker, and Tyler Newbold. Special thanks to Cast Media, and of course, many thanks to John Hopkins for joining us today. Check out his new album, Music for Psychedelic Therapy, wherever you listen to music. <laughs>